Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Chris Iyer. Chris is a true Western polymath. He's probably best known for his work as a mule packer, in which he uses mules to transport supplies into some of Montana's most remote wilderness areas. He documents these adventures on his extremely popular Instagram account called Mule Dragger. But as you'll hear in our conversation, mule packing only scratches the surface. Chris is an experienced mountaineer and climber, a former U.S. Marine, a practicing Buddhist, a leather craftsman, and a successful electrical contractor. From his home base in Montana's Bitterroot Valley, Chris leads a full and fascinating life, working hard and enjoying his connection to the natural world and to his animals. Chris was raised in California, and from an early age, he was attracted to the outdoors and adventures in wild places. On a backpacking trip during his teens, he came across a team of mules and was immediately entranced. From that moment on, he knew he wanted to work as a mule packer. As an adult, Chris taught himself the ins and outs of mule packing, a hard knocks method of learning the trade that he does not recommend to the faint of heart. But through this long and tough self-education, he established amazingly deep relationships with all of his animals, relationships that has significantly enriched his life in many ways. As you'd expect from someone with Chris's diverse set of experiences, we had an amazingly wide-ranging conversation. We chatted about how he became a mule packer and some of the crazy and scary experiences from early in his career. We discussed his time in the Marines and the lessons he learned that carry over into his current daily life. We also talk about his connection to Buddhism and his meditation practice and how this mindful approach to life and wilderness travel keep him and his team of animals safe in dangerous situations. Chris also explains the specifics of mules, both from a biological and temperamental perspective, and we discuss Chris's unique connection to the legendary alpinist Conrad Anker. As usual, we talk about books, films, Chris's favorite place in the West, and much more. There's a ton of amazing information in this episode, so be sure to check out the episode notes for the full list. Hopefully, I'll get Chris back on for part two because there's still plenty to discuss. Hope you enjoy. When you meet somebody for the first time, never met them before, and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? You know, typically, I think I just say, I mean, and I do get asked that question quite a bit just because of, you know, the kind of work I do. Um, and normally I just tell people, oh, I just got a lot of irons in the fire, which is, seems to be the most accurate way to describe, you know, my life, both work and pleasure and passion. It seems like, yeah, I just got a lot of different things going. Um, you know, I have this full-on electrical contracting company, um, you know, running full bore with employees and all that in Missoula. Uh, and then you know, have this packing business, which is its own separate you know, entity, which is running strong in the summer. Um, and then, you know, I have another company that makes saddle. I make saddles and tack, um, part W saddlery. And so I have that going as another hustle. Um, and then I own a couple rental properties, which I have that going. Um, I do just, a, you know, I've been doing just a little bit of farrier work on the side, but mostly I just stick with my own stock. So those are kind of the main, main things I got going at the moment anyway. Yeah. Well, do you ever sleep? Are you able to work sleep in there at all? <laughs> <laughs> it's overrated, man. <laughs> well, man, 
we got uh, we got a lot to talk about then with all that. Um, so so where are yeah. you right now? Where where am I catching you right now? So right now I'm just at home uh, in my office here in Stevensville, Montana, uh, yeah, in the Bitterroot Valley. So can you describe the Bitterroot Valley a little bit? Because out of all, all my all the places I've been all over the West, that is one of my favorites. I mean, it's just huh. it's just spectacular. Can you just is talk it? a little yeah. bit about that area? Yeah, it's it's a really it's a beautiful area, you know for sure. It's kind of a big wide valley. Um, it runs north, south, and on the uh, west side of the valley, there's the Bitterroot Mountain Range, which, are, which is like a, a glaciated mountain range. So you have all these glaciers that sort of poured down, uh, creating all these valleys. Um, and each one of those has its own trailhead for the most part. Almost all of them have their own trailhead and their own you know, trail that goes back up and then branches off and ties into the whole Bitterroot Selway uh, wilderness complex. Um, and then on the east side, you have the Sapphire Mountains, which are quite a bit lower. Um, and I live on the east side of the valley. And, you know, so I have this great view of the, all those mountains uh, that are to the, to the west of me. But, yeah, it's a, it's a really neat old valley. And, you know, it was one of the first white settlements. It was where, you know, there was the, the Salish Indians lived, <clears throat> you know, just down the road from me. And so there's a pretty rich Native American history here. Um, and, you know, the first white settlement in this state was here. And, uh, you know, later it, it, it ended up getting developed. The valley ended up getting developed by Marcus Daly. And, you know, he had a whole sort of land land plan and how to get people to live here. And he sort of sold it as a place, a great place to grow apples, which there's still quite a few apple orchards around that are left over from that time period. Um, yeah. So that's sort of, the, I guess, the history of it in brief. Yeah, it's a cool place. I used to do some work in that area, and I remember looking at some ranches around there, and there was a lot of talk about mm-hmm. how they used to be apple orchards back in the day. And I can't even right. remember, but yeah. but the the prices, the price per acre, you know, this was early 1900s, I guess, and it was equal to what it was now because there was such a, a boom there. It was yeah. the, it was the craziest thing to, to learn it about. Really was yeah. So how did yeah, you end up there? Oh, go ahead. No, no. So I ended up here. You know, I mean, in a way, I might. In a way, this, this, I guess a lot of my story is kind of a, in, in sort of like on a micro level, on a macro level. I think my own personal narrative, my own personal story really is about like a return to my roots in a way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm not from the Bitterroot Valley. I'm not from Montana. I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles um, in a, you know, right near the ocean, a place called Palos Verdes, kind of nestled at the southern end of the South Bay. And uh, yeah, so, you know through i don't know if you want me to just jump right into the story of yeah definitely definitely that, yeah so basically you know i grew up and uh grew up there and you know my family had a place also in uh in napa valley california and you know when i was a little kid is really when i had my first horse experience which um one of my earliest memories of my childhood memories is actually being set on top of a horse uh by some neighbor friends of ours and this this wonderful woman named bessie shepherd she had a few kids and she, you know, she took a liking to myself and she, you know, I remember that day she picked me up and set me on her, her big old horse, Savato, who I still remember this big sorrel gelding and set me up there in that saddle. And I remember I was just so, I just remember being so scared. It was so, it just felt so high up. And, uh, and I remember she just was like whispered in my ear. She just said, you know, he can tell you're scared. And if you try to not be scared, he's going to be more calm and more relaxed. And like, in a way, of course, I, you know, I was five years old, that message never really sunk in, but at the same time, it was something that I just carried with me for so long and still just a huge part of my experience today, which is just this feedback loop, this mirror 
that these equines give back to me. Um, so they, they are looking and picking up on my emotional cues and on all my nonverbal communication. And they're so much better at it than we are because mm-hmm. it's a matter of life and death for them to read, you know, body language. And so in a way that that's sort of what got me started. And then, you know, on the whole idea of what, what, you know, it means to be involved in equines as a small kid. And then later, you know, I had, you know, I didn't grow up with horses. My parents weren't into horses, but I had, you know, I had other friends and cousins that were into horses and had a couple of girlfriends in high school and they had horses in the area where I grew up. And so, you know, I rode, you know, off and on, and I certainly would not describe myself as being in any way, shape or form, like a horse crazy kid. Yeah. Cause I really wasn't, I always knew there was something about him that was special to me, but honestly, I was much more interested in getting out into the back country um, I was in the Sierra Club as a kid, and I was at the time one of the youngest graduates ever of the basic mountaineering training school. And and really, you know, horses were amazing, but it always seemed like so much. You know, it seemed there's so much infrastructure involved in them, and as opposed to hiking and doing trail work, which is really what I was, you know, just loved rock climbing, getting out into the mountains. And I, you know, I always kind of imagined myself as you know just kind of you know ending up just as some sort of a dirtbag climber, mountaineer. That's kind of the direction I sort of, you know, assumed I would go, um, in many different ways when I was in high school. Um, and was certainly heavily influenced by the sort of mountaineers of that time. Um, you know, especially, you know, people like Conrad Anchor and mm-hmm. Alex Lowe in particular, very much captured my imagination <clears throat> and I loved their spirit. I loved their wilderness ethic. I loved how, um, they were just so, <clears throat> excuse me, they were so brave and so bold. And they just, um, you know, they just really, I, I felt like both of them were really good at just wearing their hearts on their sleeve. They were just fearless with how they felt mm-hmm. and they had so much passion and so much drive to do the things, you know, that they did that it, it just, I always thought, well, shoot, I'm going to end up, you know, I'm going to end up like some lesser version of those two guys. Um, and then later as they, as they developed as climbers and mountaineers, and, and I saw them starting to go into the Himalayas and, and I saw the influence that Buddhism had on their lives that, that also in turn had a big influence on my life as well. But that maybe is a sort of separate sideline to the story. But basically I'm in the Sierras back when I was uh, 15 and a half years old, I was in the Sierras and I was doing a, a kind of a long-term hike with a group of people in the Sierra club. And I was sort of, you know, probably about four or five miles out in front of everyone. It was the last day we were going to be in the wilderness. We were headed, we'd just come out of Big Whitney Meadows and we were headed over the path into uh, Horseshoe Meadow Trailhead. And I remember I heard this strange sound, you know, on the trail coming up and I just could not imagine what that was. And, you know, around the corner there came this packer and he was riding a horse and I believe he was packing five mules behind him. And, you know, I just got off the trail and I was just absolutely starstruck by the whole thing. I just, it's like, I just, I didn't even know that that still happened. I didn't know that that was still done. I certainly heard stories about it, but I I just did not know that that was still a thing that was actually happening. And I was just completely blown away by it. I remember the Packer, he was completely silent and we just catched, you know, he caught my eye, I caught his and I just watched him go by. And I remember watching every mule behind him, you know, just looked me right in the eyes and, it was literally at that moment that I was like, yeah, one day I'm going to do that. You know, one day that's really what I'm going to be about. And then in a lot of ways, it's been kind of, it was, you know, it's a long process to get from that moment when I was 15 
um, you know, all the way up to, to where I am now. Uh, so, you know, after that, I ended up, um, you know, just con- finished high school. Um, I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old. Did and you I went really? To do that. And, yeah. So I served during the first Gulf War, um, and which was an amazing experience, you know, not something that, um, you know, there, yeah, not something I would necessarily recommend to everyone, but it was, it was great for me. It was really good. I had come from kind of a broken, uh, family, broken home life. And in a lot of ways that, you know, that situation being a Marine, like it just did so much for my confidence. It did so much for just showing me how to navigate life. Um, so yeah, it, it was an amazing experience. I, I, it was a little bit harder once the war started, it was a little bit harder to imagine, you know, actually, you know, killing people, it became really relatively clear to me early on in my tour of duty that like, yeah, I was not super interested in that. <laughs> Actually, I did not want to go after, go out and, you know, shoot some other poor, you know, scared 19 year old kid, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was in, living in some other country. And, you know, there was just, I just saw like a different sort of underbelly to the way that, you know, the sort of military industrial complex works and how we, how that gets deployed around the world. And, you know, how these things get sold as humanitarian missions. And they're, they're obviously significantly more layers to it than just that typically economic. But with all that said, I don't, I don't have any regrets about it at all. It was definitely probably one of the better moves I ever made in my life was actually becoming a Marine, but yeah, got out of the Marines and went to college at uh, Marymount college and, um, you know, did not find college particularly challenging. I ended up taking a philosophy class, but it was the first time I'd ever gotten to be in anything in college. And I just, it just made me so angry that I decided <laughs> I was going to become a philosophy major. <laughs> so I, that's uh, a yeah. common theme of people having this podcast. Somebody <laughs> tells them they can't do something or they, somebody yeah, kind of right. <laughs> doubts them and then that's it. It's on. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, so I was, I was ready to go with that. And, and as a part of that, uh, going to school there in Southern California, I was forced to take this religious studies course, and um, which was a great class taught by a Benedictine priest that had nothing to do with Catholicism. It just had to do with exploring other religious traditions, none of which I was particularly interested in. But when we were forced to go on a field trip to a, a Thai Buddhist temple um, in North Hollywood, I, I went there and it was like I could see everything I saw in the Marines without the overall direction being, you know, like death and destruction. It was, you know, about compassion and interconnection. And it was like, there was the camaraderie, there was the, the sort of like singularity of purpose. There was like a monomaniacal sort of focus on, you know, growth and development. And I thought, man, that is, that totally lit me up. And so with that in mind, I, I transferred to where I knew I'd always end up, which is at the university of Montana because, you know, my family's from here. My mom was born just down the road from where I live. And so there'd been a lot of times where we made so many treks back to Montana. And, uh, and I grew up on a steady diet of listening to these stories of uh, my grandfather telling me all these stories where he grew up, which was right at the foot, in the foothills of the Bob. And obviously it wasn't called the Bob Marshall Wilderness then, but he spent a lot of time in those mountains and in those hills and in those prairies around that area. So I always knew I'd end up back there. This kind of, again, this is sort of a return back to my roots. And so, yeah, came to the University of Montana and, you know, got tied in with a really, really amazing uh, Buddhist studies professor there. And he'd sort of like given up big league academics and he, he let go of his career at uh, both at Princeton and Stanford so that he could come to a small place like this and live where he wanted to live and teach Buddhist studies. And so, Anyway, he kind of took me under his wing, and he's someone who I'm still, you know, really good friends with to this day. 
And uh, yeah, he took me under his wing and exposed me to a lot of Western philosophy and a lot of um, a lot of Buddhist history and a lot of um, Buddhism in general. And so, sort of like me. In the meanwhile, this is all happening. You know, I'm getting out in the wilderness as often as I can. I'm hiking all over the place. A lot of solo trips in the Anaconda Pentler Wilderness area. A lot of solo trips in the Bitterroot. Um, and yeah, eventually I met a woman in one philosophy class, and she was she's like this horse crazy lady. And we connected up, and uh, I bought my first horse. I think it was in 1995, and I bought this big old Belgian draft horse, and um, just told her like, "Hey, this is I want to go in the mountains. I want to figure out how to pack. This is what I want to do." She is, was a you know came from an English background, English writing background, and so you know initially, you know she got me started with with that whole program of of really learning horsemanship from more of like a dressage and eventing sort of perspective, which. It was definitely my foundation, like you know, taking lessons from people who truly knew how to ride those disciplines. But relatively quickly, I abandoned that and and uh, and, and started riding Western, which is what I really wanted to do. But yeah, just started trekking through the hills um, with that one horse and just had, you know, just an absolute junk show going down the trail with all my stuff <laughs> on my horse and plowing into the mountains and not having any idea at all what I was doing with horses. So yeah, that, you know, that woman, she knew, you know, so much about horses and knew nothing about camping in the backcountry. I knew a lot about camping in the backcountry and travel and navigation and all that, but I really didn't know anything about equines of, mm-hmm. with any depth. So, you know, she definitely brought me along and, and uh, exposed me to so many different aspects of, you know, equines and what that's all about and how the communication works and and how to read them and how to see what they're doing and really opened my eyes to all that. Yeah, I'll certainly forever be grateful to her for all that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what got me into it. I ended up marrying her. Um, and then, you know, just, you know, we, we had kids and I just kept going. And I mean, I have, still have some pictures floating around of me, you know, taking that same draft horse, completely overloaded. And I have a kid in a backpack and we're, and I'm leading this horse into the backcountry. So I drug my kids all over the wilderness. And, uh, yeah, eventually, um, as my, you know, as my career, I got out of college, I started a restaurant in Missoula with a friend and did that for a year. And then, um, you know, figured out that it's pretty tough to stay in, in Montana and make a decent living. So, uh, I got an apprenticeship, an electrical apprenticeship and started doing electrical work, um, in Missoula. And when I was in the Marine Corps, I was, uh, my primary job skill was I was an avionics technician, so basically an electrician on airplanes. Okay. And so, um, yeah, I started doing electrical work in Missoula and then, you know, relatively soon went out, started my own business and have been doing that ever since as a, you know, the primary way to, to earn money. And, uh, it's been, and that certainly has been a good ride for me, but along the way, what came with that was an ability to, you know, purchase land and purchase stock and start getting into the backcountry more and more and more, um, and really eventually start giving back to these wilderness areas, you know, that means so much to me, um, fully 80 plus percent of the packing I do is on a strictly volunteer basis for different trail crew organizations. And I also just straight up volunteer for the federal government moving, pay and gear and equipment for them for no compensation whatsoever. Man, just in that uh, story there, there's like probably 10 different things that I could talk to you for an hour about. 
<laughs> you're talking about Alex Lowe, Conrad Anchor, who I admire both. You're talking about the Marines. You're talking about Buddhism. All this stuff yep. is um, unbelievably interesting. So, all right, I, I'm just going to kind of jump around for a minute, if you don't mind. But so yeah, the well, Marine, the Marines. Um, you went to yeah. that. You know, that's the Marines has a reputation of being the most hardcore. You know, you you cannot. You cannot be out of shape in the Marines, whether you're the the general or whether you're, you're you just show up. So when you showed up in the Marines and went into the basic training, when you look back, the guy that uh-huh. went in and then the guy that came out of that, what 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 was the the biggest change you think you saw in yourself after after going through that experience? Um, I would say, like in the in the simplest way, probably two things. The first thing is was actually just a deep sense of engagement with life. Like I had the senior drill instructor who definitely had a huge influence on me and uh, his name's well, Staff Sergeant Knutson. I don't even, I actually don't even know his first name, but just always addressed him as drill instructor, Staff Sergeant Knutson. And that guy had a massive influence on me and he was such an intense guy and he would always just hammer on these certain things like, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing it all the way. And so you know, there was certainly a lot of smaller little lessons like that that he instilled in me, but it was definitely like, you know, life is not a spectator sport. Like you got to get in there and do it and go after it. And if it doesn't work out, trust me, you're going to find what you want or what you need to do along the way, but don't sit around. Don't, you know, don't wait for something to come to you. Um, you know, go out and get what you want and, and, and take life, you know, take life by the horns and, and get after it. And so that certainly was a big piece of it. But then he would also, you know, he also sprinkled in a number of other things that were incredibly counterintuitive that I think in a lot of ways took me, you know, years and years to unpack. And maybe in some ways I'm still trying to unpack them. But, you know, I remember like sitting in the squad day at night and it's kind of this quiet time, and you know, where everyone's sort of going to bed. And, you know, when he was on duty for the night, he'd sort of walk up and down the, you know, the racks, the bed, and, and he would, he would just have these little funny little stories he'd tell and little life lessons. But, you know, he would say things like, you know, right before he left, he would say things like, Hey, love is the only thing that matters. And then he'd walk out of the room and I'd be like, wait, wait what? <laughs> How does this fit into this? You know, you guys been yelling at me all day, all of us. And like, I just was so counterintuitive. You know, I just couldn't, I just, it just, it just the juxtaposition of him talking about the centrality of love when it comes to life at the same time in this setting just sort of scrambled my head in so many ways, you know, but in a way that sort of has, has just continually come back to like, you know, just trying to understand, well, what the hell does that even mean? And what the, what does love even mean? What is, what does that mean? What's it about? What is, what, why is this piece of connection so important and why was it important to him? And, and, and not that I even, you know, in a way I'm kind of quite happy to leave that as a relatively unresolved question and just continue to sort of mull it over um, and just watch it sort of fan out into the world. So, yeah, yeah. well, it's like those, uh, probably- yeah, and it's kind of like those, are they called cones, K-O-A-N-S, Buddhist oh, cones yeah. that, that yeah. koans that are, uh, you know, these questions that, that you ask, but there is no real answer. Correct. Yeah. It is a lot like that for sure. Yep. Um, Very much so. So as far as Buddhism goes, are you, would you consider yourself a, a practicing Buddhist now? Or do you, or do you have a, a, a serious meditation practice? How, how much of Buddhism is in your daily life? Yeah, I would say actually, you know, there's this funny meeting between my equine world and, and Buddhism as a practice. Uh, yeah, I would consider myself to be a Buddhist. I mean, to be a Buddhist really at the end of the day just means 
it in the simplest form just means that you go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You just go for refuge to the example of the Buddha, yep. to the teachings um, that he put forth, and to the larger community of followers who are just trying to, in a way, just trying to transform themselves into better, more compassionate, connected human beings. So sure, I would consider myself that. I later went on and got my master's degree in Buddhist studies from the University of Sunderland in the UK. So I'm fairly well grounded in it. And I probably started meditating in, oh, I think it was 94, something wow. like that. And then, uh, yeah, and, and I've had a you know pretty darn consistent practice since then, um, both Vipassana and Shamatha. So, so the sort of like centering, grounding, and also the insight-based meditation practice, primarily for the last 12 years or something, it's pretty much been almost exclusively Vipassana meditation. Um, but yeah, I got involved in setting up the Rocky Mountain Buddhist Center in Missoula, and I, um, you know, did a bunch of stuff with that. And uh, then, you know, I, I got pretty involved in teaching for quite a few years. I don't really do any of that anymore, but I, I did do quite a bit of teaching for a while and led a bunch of retreats and, and whatever, and, and had a great time doing all that and, you know, all interfaced with my master's degree. But, you know, and I've sat, I certainly sat at the feet of some pretty remarkable humans and some pretty incredible Buddhist teachers, but, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, trying to figure out what it means to practice and what does it mean to do this, this, this life. And, and ultimately it actually came down to being with my equines, um, because that actually is certainly the most transformative practice that I've ever been involved in. Um, and it has certainly has a meditative quality to it. You need, you sit 30 miles on the trail or in a saddle on a trail you've been on a hundred times and, you see it differently every time. I mean, sort of like Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher said, you can't ever step in the same river twice. Well, you can't ever go on the same pack trip twice. Either. You can't really ever do anything twice. It's the same. And I think that ultimately, you know, mules in particular have played this pivotal role in, for me in what it means to be human and to be involved in a change, transformation, you know, intentional transformation process, just because um, they are just these incredible creatures that are reflecting back everything to me um, about where I'm at, about what's going on with me, about what my desires are. And, you know, for me, the way I've always, what I've always considered them for myself is, is there a certain kind of midwife that's delivering me back again, back to my roots or back to a more basic experience of myself um, that I think, you know, I, I, I hesitate to use the word pure a little bit, but, they, there is a more fundamental experience of what it means to be human that I think is more primal. And I think that in large part, we have sort of like collectively been involved in a process of covering that all up through, you know, building vehicles and development of culture and having grid systems and streets and running down the road at 70 miles an hour. And I don't, all that stuff I think is in a lot of ways counter to how we have evolved as humans. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons I spend so much time in the wilderness is because it's actually a return to a more basic experience of the world around us. And that puts us in a more basic experience of ourselves. And the equines, I think, are a certain kind of bridge to that, um, to that more fundamental experience of the world. And so, yeah, at least for me, they've certainly been that kind of a midwife. And in a lot of ways, I guess I can boil that down to, I mean, if Buddhism isn't about anything, it's about change, uh -huh. and just change. Everything around us is in a constant state of change. Nothing is fixed. Yeah. Nothing is unchanging. And so when I go into the wilderness, the change process is absolutely undeniable. It's all around us. You see the rivers changing, the leaves changing. Every time I go there, it's changing. The fires are changing it. Everything is changing. And it's this untrammeled, 
you know, relatively untouched blocks of land that I can go into and have a deep and intimate experience of change. And I think ultimately for me, where that's led me is seeing that change process, seeing the, the myriad of influences involved in that change process has allowed me to see that actually I'm involved in a web, an interconnected web of experience. And at the end of the day, the ethical ramifications of that are if you act any other way but selflessly, you end up acting self-destructively. And so being woven into this web has really been the, the final outcome, if you will, or the final process for me of being in the wilderness with these animals has really, really, um, you know, in a way, given birth to me in, back into something that's more fundamentally human, something that's more primal. Um, and, and, I, and, and really, that's, why, that's, what I, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's really not to make money. It's not to move heavy things. Um, it's not for Instagram. It's not for any of that stuff. Really, what it's about is, is like this deeper interconnection. And then there's a sort of secondary dimension to it, which is having the ability to introduce other people to that process, whether they understand it or not, and, um, and watching people get affected by that. And especially in these times where it just seems like there's so much polarization in the world politically, mm -hmm. socially. And, you know, I think so much of that is actually artificial. I don't think we're actually as divided as it all sort of looks. I agree. You know, I take people from the far right, and that's good. <laughs> I take people from the far right into the wilderness, and I take people from the far left into the wilderness, and you take them off the top of the food chain, and there are grizzly bears out there that will eat you. And that changes the way people look at the world. It changes how people interact with each other. So I'm sitting out there with a hardcore Republican and right next to me is a hardcore Democrat. And you would never know the difference. There's, they just, they love it out there. They love what they're seeing. They want to preserve it. Um, the way they relate to each other is totally different. Once you pull away all the infrastructure of what it means to be living in an industrialized world and it just, it brings out a more fundamental aspect of people. And I think people do just ultimately want to connect. And I think we've just spent so much time historically covering that all up that, uh, you know, that we are in a lot of ways alienated from ourselves and alienated from one another. I think that's just manifest in all these divisions that we think are out there. I completely agree with all that. And I think that's one of the reasons I love, you know, expeditions or long trips in the mountains or hard days in the mountains with a team is because yeah. it strips away all mm -hmm. that nonsense and, and, you know, you've got this common right. purpose that you're going after and, and none of that stuff matters. And then I've found the only downside is that when you, when you get back from a trip like that and you're introduced <laughs> to all the, the, the kind of bullshit of daily life, it, it kind of gets yeah. me down. Cause I'm like, man, it's, it, you know, everything was seemed so important when you're out there and it's life the, you know, the goal of the right. day is don't die. And then you come back and you have right. to play around right. on email and, you know, pay your cell phone bill and that right. kind of stuff. And it can, I don't know, that's where I need right. to do better with the, the meditation because it, <laughs> it helps me deal with that kind of stuff. Um, one more question about meditation real quick. Um, yeah. if you had in all your studies, you've obviously, you know, know a ton more about it than I do. I, I'm a daily meditator as well. And it's the most important thing I've ever done right. ever. Um, but right. if you had to recommend two or three books for somebody that, wanted to get started in meditation, doesn't know anything about it. Um, what are there, are there a few books you would recommend that would help people kind of dip their toe in it and start figuring it out? Mm, yeah, there's uh gosh, there's uh, God, I apologize. I'm not going to remember it off the top of my head, but there is, yeah, there's a great introduction to meditation book that, you know, actually got me started. 
Um, but I apologize. I'm not going to remember the name of that. Oh, that's right. Or, yeah, I can't remember the author of it, but yeah. Um, but I would certainly, honestly, I think, you know, my, my take on it, honestly, though, is I would go learn from somebody. That's what I would go do. There's so much Buddhism out there. There's so many Buddhist centers out there. And I honestly, I, you know, I think books are great. I love books, big time reader, but I think meditation historically, it's always been something that's needed to be communicated directly from one person to another. So if, if people are interested in meditation, that would certainly be my, my go-to thing would be to go, go to a Buddhist center. You don't have to get affiliated. You don't have to quote unquote join or any of that. Just show up there, take an introduction to meditation class, take a few introduction to meditation classes and, you know, and see what sticks. I agree. That's, that's what I did. I, I used to, I lived in Boulder for a long time and, uh, I went to the Shambhala, uh-huh. the Shambhala center, um, to learn. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I'm from North Carolina. I'm not, you know, I'm not really mm-hmm. into a bunch of, bunch of kind of crazy stuff. And, and they, sure. I, I, I didn't know what to expect, but there was no weird stuff. No, no like pitch yeah. for me yeah. to join up. No, no, uh, ask yeah, for exactly. money. Yeah. It was a, it was the most straightforward, yeah. cool thing. It was just, it's like going almost like going to right. a personal trainer for your brain, you know, and, and they teach you the meditation. Right. And then, you know, if you want to keep coming back, you yeah. can, if, and, and it was the, the least weird experience, uh, kind of with a religious exactly. institution I've ever been to. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. There's some great stuff happening down in that area. I know Reginald Ray is an amazing teacher who I've had a bunch of interactions with and, and uh, I know that those guys have a great center going down in Boulder as well. And yeah, there's a lot of, lot of, lot of good stuff out there for sure. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. I mean, it's it is, uh, and and several people yeah. on this podcast have have talked about how it's been so important to their lives, whether they're doing creative work or anything. And it's just, um, yeah, right. it's amazing stuff. So, you let's let's we need to get to the mule packing because otherwise we're going to be sitting here talking for yeah. like five hours, which would be fine with me. But um, so so. How did you, so, so you told a little bit about your first experiences, but how did you mm-hmm. take it from kind of the, the first stage of being interested to being able to do this on a professional basis? How, how did you make that leap? So, you know, it was a, it was definitely a process. There's no question. It takes years. I mean, honestly, the first, first thing about it is like the amount of infrastructure you have to have to support even a small string is pretty significant. It's like, you got to have the land to keep them. You got to have the money to be able to feed them. Then you got to have a trailer to be able to move them from point A to point B. You got to have a truck that's, that can safely pull that trailer from point A to point B. Um, then you got to have all the tack and the saddles and all that stuff. So, you know, the infrastructure piece of it definitely took me quite some time to sort of build up. And, you know, it, it is a process of doing that. So every year getting more equipment, getting more checked out with my stock, but really I'm, Basically, I'm completely self-taught, which I would absolutely not recommend to anyone. <laughs> um, take a pack clinic. I mean, because it is, you're risking your life and you're risking the lives of your animals when you do that. And and honestly, I, I had some, early in my packing career, I had some bad wrecks and I almost killed a couple of horses on a couple of different occasions. And thankfully, that never happened. But um, Can you boy, tell one close. of those stories, and like so, what caused it? Sure. Yeah. Inexperience is what caused it. It was completely my fault, but sure. I can remember going on a, a pack trip into the Bob and I, uh, and I was, you know, it was, this was early, early in my packing career before I really got into mules. And so, um, you know, had a few horses and, um, and most of the horses that my wife at the time and I had were, you know, really nice, like dressage horses. 
And uh, plus I had one, you know, sort of like uh, grade quarter horse. And one of those uh, horses that was so nice, you know, I was packing that horse. And, you know, honestly, it's like he didn't belong in the mountains. Those animals, their temperament, they just, they're made for running at full out and taking big jumps and all the rest of it. They're not made for going into the wilderness. They just don't have the temperament that you need. And he was really spooky and sketchy. And uh, yeah, so I loaded him up and didn't know what I was doing and had packed a bunch, but it was like I had the loads were too heavy. My loads were set too high on the saddle, which gives them a lot of lateral movement. But we were going up the first pass. We're like three miles in. And I saw that I, I saw that his pack was starting to roll. His saddle was starting to go. So I immediately stopped. And as I was getting off the horse, he saw my horse. He saw that load shifting. He immediately just reared all the way up, went over backwards, landed on his back, and then proceeded to roll down a hillside fairly violently cool. until he got wedged into a, uh, a stand of, uh, of quaking aspen. And he was sort of wedged in there. And, you know, all this gear sort of yard sailed out down the hillside, which just strewned all over the place. And, you know, I, you know, jumped off my horse and went scrambling down there. And his breast collar was completely choking him out. His eyes started rolling back into his head. And then, you know, what can happen sometimes they get, you know, with horses or and mules, if they get in too bad of a situation like that, they'll get, they'll start going into shock and they can just completely, they can die of a heart attack right on the spot. So I immediately pulled out my knife and, and, you know, started cutting leather as fast as I could to get that breast collar off. He was still flailing his legs. And, you know, he's a big draft cross sport horse, stood about 16, one or so and weighed in at about 1300 pounds. He's a big boy Damn. and it's feet are just flailing all over the place. And I cut that breast collar off and then just, I, you know, it started trying to get him to get up, started pulling the saddle apart. And he just, in the middle of all that, he just completely gave up and just froze and just completely eyes rolled into the back of his head. And it was like, man, I did not know what to do. And I was pulling on his lead rope as hard as I could. And he just didn't even budge. And I, I honestly, I just didn't even know what to do. I just, and it just, just, out of the blue, it just dawned on me that I better start kicking him. And, and I'm someone who doesn't hit and doesn't kick animals, but this felt like it was a matter of life and death for him. And I just kicked him as hard as I could in the rib cage. And I mean, I kicked him as hard as I possibly could. And his eyes popped open. He just bounded up and just about trampled me in the process. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely super scary and he was shaking like a leaf and uh, he was just completely freaked out. And so, yeah, I led him back up the hill hour and a half later, I had the loads put back together and I thought, Oh man, they are just so scary. And um, yeah, I got him on the trail and got over that path and got about half a mile down the other side where it's even steeper and the pack string is coming up and they're longer had more pack animals than, you know, than I did. So they had the right away and I tried to get off the trail out of their way. And he just, and without even that saddle rolling, he just flipped right over backwards. He just the exact same thing, like charging down the hillside and just did it all over again. And it was, yeah, it was one of the, not the worst day I've ever had packing, but certainly one of them. And uh, yeah. So, you know, thankfully he didn't, he didn't go into, he didn't go into shock like that, but I eventually got him up and, probably solid two hours later, we were back on the trail and, uh, you know, made camp instead of like the, whatever, almost 28 miles I would plan to go. I think we went six or something like that. And that was it. Uh, made camp. And then he didn't pack anymore. He never packed again. And then 
I rode him and packed my quarter horse. He did great for the rest of the trip, but I basically came back from that trip and that was it for me with horses and packing. Like I don't, I mean, I have horses that all my horses can pack, but I, I don't pack them unless I absolutely have to. And yeah, I came, went, came home and started buying mules right there on the spot. Well, yeah, well, that's a good good way to start talking about the mules specifically. So for people who don't know, and I uh-huh. bet a lot of people don't, um, can you describe exactly what a mule is? Sure. A mule is the offspring between a female horse, a mare, and a male donkey. It doesn't work the other way. Those are a totally different kind of animal um, called a hiney, and they are people don't, they're only happen pretty much by mistake. They are not untrainable completely, but they're very rare and you don't see them. And they usually happen by accident because they do not contain the same qualities that a mule does at all. And they look quite a bit different too. So mules are a hybrid uh, between a female horse and a male donkey. And the mules that I have all come out of large draft horse mothers so a big draft horse mare, and then what's called a mammoth jack, which is a very, very large donkey um, that is, you know, I mean, they can be, you know, 15'2", 15'3". They can be enormous. People don't realize how big some donkey breeds are, and these mammoth jacks are giant. So that's why, you know, I don't have a single mule that weighs less than 1,200 pounds. They're all big, half, you know, drafty mules. And um, so, yeah, that's, the, that's the sort of where they come from or what they are. But then they have a lot of different sort of traits about them that make them essentially significant. Generally speaking, they're, they're superior pack animals. The first thing is their eyes are set a little bit wider on their head. So they do have better peripheral vision. They can see better, which is why people talk about them as being more sure-footed. Usually it's a matter that they can actually see okay. better. Um, the way that they carry loads is different. They have a much flatter back. So generally speaking, the loads will not shift as much as they walk down the trail. There's less overall uh, lateral movement in their backs. Um, they do have an amazing kind of hybrid vitality. So they are less susceptible to all sorts of different ailments um, because of that hybrid vitality. Uh, they, they just don't, they don't get as sick as often. They tend to have, you know, they tend to have less problems with colic. They tend to be able to eat less and, and maintain their weight. Um, they can work longer. They have longer lives. They can work. It's not uncommon to see mules working pretty far into their 20s. Um, they do live longer. Um, they're sort of just overall significantly hardier animals. Their, their circulation system works slightly differently than horses. So they actually are able to cool themselves better. They do much better in hot weather, which is why places like in, in, for example, in New Orleans, where they have these mule-drawn carriages, they, they have outlawed horse-drawn carriages because of the heat. Mm. Um, it's just too hard on horses, and, it, and but mules, it does not affect them in the same way. Um, so, yeah, that, and then probably one of the big things is the way their fight or flight or freeze response works is, is just different than horses. Donkeys tend to be have a little bit more fight in them than horses do. And so mules have sort of picked up that response to stressful situations. So, for example, in, in like minor situations where dogs like come up, like oftentimes horses will, will their initial response is to flee. But uh, most mules will actually like they'll try and kill the dog, yeah. um, just like a donkey would, um, generally speaking. But then also in packing situations, um, the big thing, they have this freeze response. So 
you know, you get a horse into trouble, which I've done more than a, my fair share of times, and they will panic. They will panic and they will, if they're caught in wire or they're caught in rope, they will panic and make things worse. Um, a mule will actually not do that on, on the, generally speaking on the whole, they will wait for help. So I have mules get wrapped around a tree. Um, I had a mule get a lead rope completely wrapped around his leg on the top of this, up at this lookout nearby. And he realized that's what happened. And he just laid down, laid down right in the middle of the trail and just calmly waited for me to completely unwrap him and untangle him from the sea of rope. So that also makes them, you know, very, very beneficial in the mountains, especially when you have, it's not, you know, when you have a longer string, all of that starts to make, you know, much more significant difference because things can go south so quickly, so fast, and there's so much rope involved and there's so many animals involved that you need them to be able to sort of maintain some semblance of calmness in a panicky situation. That's really interesting. Um, Yeah, I think those are kind of the main things. And so there's this cliche out there, uh, you know, stubborn as a mule. But in my reading um, about mm-hmm. about the animal, it it sounds like that's not completely accurate. If they are stubborn, it's because they're 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 extremely smart. And can you talk a little bit about yeah. their, their intelligence? And then I, I read also that they're sure. they can. It sounds like they can almost be like a dog as far as being brave and protective of their owner. Is that true? Yeah, they definitely can be like that for sure. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that. Um, See, they're, they, the reason that they do have, I think that, that, uh, you know, that there's this cliche about them being stubborn really is because they are more intelligent. So a lot of that research now has been done. And just in the last 10 years, there's been a bunch of university studies that have shown through all these different problem solving techniques and whatever tests that mules are, are quite a bit more intelligent. So what that really means is at the end of the day is these mules are, they, if they say no, it's for a reason. They, and, 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 and I'm not saying it's a good reason, but it's for a reason. They are not going to do something because it doesn't feel right. It doesn't look safe. It doesn't feel safe. Whereas, quite frankly, like with my, my lead string horse, I could pretty much convince him to do anything. I, I truly feel like if I asked, I could ride him off a cliff and he would, he would listen to me and he would comply with what I tell him to do. Mules are not like that. Mules have a much stronger sort of self-preservation um, sense about them. And as a result, you know, the way I always put it is if you're working with mules, you're having a conversation. You can tell a horse what to do. You need to ask a mule what it, to do something for you. And, you know, they will. I can ask my mules and have asked my mules to do things that they have no business doing. And, I, and we've gotten into trouble. But every time that's happened, they've always told me first, this is not a good decision. You're not making good choices right now. And, and I've certainly learned to listen to that, you know, over the years more and more for sure, but they're very intelligent animals. And yeah, if they tell me they're not going somewhere, it's for a good reason for sure. When you select a new mule, when you're out looking for one, what are the, are there any specific characteristics you're looking for or, or maybe characteristics that if you see, you're like, I don't want anything to do with that one. Yeah. So the biggest thing for me is there's really, I, you know, temperament. That's, that's what matters to me more than anything. So I pretty much only run draft. Oh, I only run draft cross mules. That's it. Um, they hold up better. They do better, uh, doing what I do. And they, and if I had a, I, for a while I ran a smaller mule and that poor little girl just couldn't keep up with these big guys. Um, so the first thing I, I wouldn't even look at a mule that wasn't a big drafty one to fit into my string. But then when it actually comes to, the animal itself, 
confirmation means almost nothing to me. Almost zero. I, it, unless the thing is just completely a train wreck, like it's got a club foot or some total defect. Um, I don't care what they look like. I don't care if they have withers. I don't care how high, you know, how long their neck is or if their neck's set on too low or too high. That's irrelevant to me. I want an animal with heart and I want an animal that has a solid temperament. So, you know, I use a lot of my mules come from this, came from this one outfitter, K Lazy 3, when he was all geared up and selling, you know, he was running 60, 70 mules and most all of them were for sale at any given point. So when I would buy mules from him, it was, you know, I would literally walk into a, a, a corral that was like 40 by 40 that had 40 head in it. And there is just so many animals crammed into this wilderness corral. And I just walk in there and just walk amongst them. And, you know, honestly, the way I always put it is I would let the mule choose me much more than I would ever choose the mule. I want one that's curious, one that's going to come up to me, approach me, one that's going to actually try and connect with me. Um, if the thing won't get near me and it's just running away constantly from me, like I, I just am personally not interested in that mule. They don't, they won't fit into the program that I have going because I need animals that can connect. I need animals that are going to be good with people. I work around a lot of trail crews and I'm around my animals are around a lot of people and I can't have animals that are not going to get along with people or don't like people. Um, I need to have animals that kids can run, you know, run past and all that. Cause that's just part of the life on the trail. But more than anything, I need an animal with heart. It's got to be able to connect and it's got to have heart. It's got to be willing to, you know, willing to have a job that it loves to do. Um, my animals enjoy their work. They do not, you know, it's not like I got to go chase them around the pasture in order to get them loaded up. You know, that trailer comes out and they're ready to go and they know their job and, you know, yeah. In some of the reading I was doing about you uh, before we, we were chatting, um, there was a, I found an article somewhere and you were talking about the idea of of trying to control this this huge operation you have going, you know, all these animals, all these ropes, you know, just there's so many moving parts yeah. um, and, and so many moving parts, right. moving personalities, everything. And and you, you mentioned in this mm-hmm. article that you had had come to a realization at some point that it's it's impossible to control it all. And so you just kind of need to, to, to let go and, and trust the animals mm-hmm. um, and then hearing yep. about your Buddhism and the under, you know, your understanding about mm-hmm. everything is in constant change. It, it all seems to kind of link yep. together. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how mm-hmm. you just kind of need to surrender control to the animals? Yeah, you definitely do. I mean, it's just, I mean, I, you know, I go out with so many heads, you know, at a time that, you know, in a way, you know, it just, it just has to be that way. It's like, I cannot control every facet of the experience for sure. And, um, you know, in, in the, I think probably the best way to illustrate it for me is, I was helping out this outfitter a number of years ago and he had a really inexperienced packer. I finally got him into the backcountry with his string. Um, and the next day I had to help him make this camp and then I had to go and I didn't get on the trail until way later than I should have to go back to the trailhead. And, you know, it was in, the, it was in July and I think mm, I probably had eight miles left and it was about maybe 10, 30 or 11 and it was starting to get dark. And I had maybe two loaded animals. The rest were empty and, you know, I'm riding along and it's getting pitch black and, you know, and it is, it's very dangerous packing in the dark. There's so many things that can go wrong and you just can't see well enough. And, you know, I remember sitting there riding along and it's getting darker and darker and I'm thinking crap, you know? And so the first instinct I had is like break out my headlamp, you know, and whatever. And, you know, in the headlamp just sort of creates so many problems. It's like 
you know, messing with their night vision because equines can see quite well, actually, you know, especially if there's star or, or moonlight out. And eventually it was like, I was just so, you know, kind of like worried about everything. And when I get worried like that, it just, it just sort of ripples through the whole string and everyone's kind of on edge. And so again, that constant feedback loop where it's just like, yeah, my emotional experience is having an effect on these animals by how I'm sort of like manifesting that in my body. So, you know, I just turned the light off. It's like, they've been on that trail, like, they, they'd been on it a hundred times. They, they knew where they were going. I didn't need to direct this whole thing. I didn't need to be in charge or control this whole thing. And yeah, I just hooked my reins around the horn and just held onto the lead rope of my lead mule. And we just charged down the trail in pitch black and I couldn't see a thing. And you just have this feeling of just like, yeah, it's, that was one of the biggest learning lessons I think ever for me, which is just that, yeah, I'm not nearly in, in control of this whole thing as I think I am. And that I do just need to just let go and trust these animals. They, they trust me. So, you know, I can certainly have that level of trust with them. And we just went right down that trail. We didn't have a single incident that whole eight miles in the pitch black. And so I don't know, that was certainly a big, I think a big turning point for me around what it means to trust them in that way. And now it's like all I can, I know all I can really do is I can just, there's certain things I can control, how my loads are set, how much they weigh, how everybody is saddled, making sure the cinches are all good, making sure the ropes are all put up properly. But beyond that, it's like they know what they're doing. I know what I'm doing. And I just have to let go of that and just let them go where they need to go. And, and they just, there's minor directions that I give them on the trail, but I don't, I don't ride with bits. Um, I don't think I need to. These animals know what they're doing. They don't have to have that level of control or they don't need that level of me controlling them. They just need reminder at certain trail junctions. Hey, are we going left or are we going right? Because sometimes we go one way, other times we go the other way. So they need cues for where we're going. And then, you know, they'll need cues for when we're going to stop and, you know, and go. And that's really about it. They don't need this big array of vocabulary in terms of cues for what we're doing. So, yeah, I think that whole process has certainly been very interesting and yeah, has all sorts of like ramifications for the rest of my life in terms of knowing when to let go and knowing when, when to engage in a way that's directive like that. Yeah. That's what I was thinking is that those lessons, you could apply those to your experience in mountaineering, you know, or your experience in the Marines, just the, 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 there's, it's just this crazy yeah. environment where there's so much going on. And if, I think most normal humans would try to think they could control it, but that's just a recipe for driving yourself right. nuts. I would, I would imagine. I mean, I haven't obviously haven't been in the Marines, exactly. but I've done some mountaineering and you just got to take care of what yeah. you can take care of. And then just, just kind of <laughs> let go. It's uh it's yeah. a tough thing to do. Yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah, it is. And you know, and I was, I was lucky enough last year um, to be able to take Conrad anchor on a pack trip in the Bob. Oh, really? Incredibly meaningful thing. Be, yeah, to be able to meet my hero, like people I say, don't meet your heroes. I could not, I couldn't, I could not prescribe that strongly enough. Go meet your heroes, go find them. And uh, yeah, and I was able to bring him into the Bob with his amazing wife, Jenny Lowe, anchor. Yep. And, uh, and you know, that, that it, it was so, there was so much overlap in the way that he saw this entire program with how I understand how wilderness works and how control works. And what does it mean to, you know, to be in this environment and, and not have the control that you think you do and to listen to him talk about the enormous array of people that he's lost to mountaineering and just how, how he's managed that with 
such incredible grace. Um, yeah, it, it was incredibly inspiring, but there is a big overlap between all the, you know, being in the wilderness, whether you're hiking or packing or mountaineering, there's a big overlap there and how people approach it and the impact it has on their lives. That's really cool. You got to spend time with him. He's a, he's a hero of mine as well. And he, um, Oh, yeah. yeah, the 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 tragedy that that guy's had to endure is just amazing. But both, you know, you were talking about Alex Lowe as well, and you know, I think both of those guys. Mm-hmm. The the thing that sticks out to me is they're obviously energetic and and brave and that kind of thing. But they were, but you know, Alex was and and Conrad still is just amazingly positive and optimistic um, mm-hmm. in in the face of you know surviving some you know pretty pretty just terrible tragedies. It's, it's a real, um, I love, I love anything I can get my eyes on that Conrad has done, you know, the movie Maru and just following on Instagram. It's it's very inspiring. Oh, amazing. That's cool. Yeah, it really is. He's incredibly inspiring. And I felt incredibly lucky to do that. And he wants to do a couple of work trips or at least a work trip with me this summer. And yeah, I just, yeah, he is such an amazing and inspiring individual on so many levels and, and so accessible. And just, my God, that guy's heart is just, it's, it's, it's bigger than my mule's heart. It's just huge. He's just such a, such a fine human being. And yeah, could not, could not speak more highly of that guy. That's for sure. And isn't his that, wife is incredible. Jenny's amazing. Isn't that cool when you meet somebody that you have had admired from afar and they're just as cool or cooler yeah. than you expected? <laughs> It's refreshing. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. When your expectations, they don't just get exceeded. They got blown out of the water. And I look like he wanted to go do some, he wanted to do some rock climbing, but while we were back there. So he bought, brought a little rack. And I had obviously done some rock climbing when I was younger. And, you know, he just set up a top rope on this big boulder that had fallen off of the sort of Southern end of the Chinese wall and, uh, in, in the Bob and, he set up this top rope and he wanted to be belayed too. And I mean, this is like, I mean, we're talking like 30 feet or something of climbing and the level of enthusiasm and excitement that this guy had when he hit that rock. And this guy's climbed all over the world. He's summoned Everest multiple times. He's, I mean, he's been to like every amazing wilderness, you know, on the planet. And here this guy is, I mean, just this simple, simple, simple climb. And he was, so fulfilled and so tuned into it and so enthusiastic about this tiny climb. It's like just to be around that kind of energy where someone is that passionate that despite how many times he's done this, despite, you know, he's that he's one of the top climbers in the world here. He is on a nothing, just this little boulder. And he is so tuned into that rock and he is just having the time of his life. And, and it was, that was just such a huge message for me. And like, I try and think about that a lot. Like, Hey, it's like, you know, there's some little kid, like my, some folks that live, my neighbors, they have a little kid that's horse crazy. It's like, yeah, I come on up, you know? And I, I just want to engage with this little girl walking around as I lead her. I want to engage with, with that, just like Conrad engaged with that rock. Like, Hey, this is just as important in some ways, maybe more important. It's contagious. You know, what I'm doing writ large. Yeah, it really is. So I'm grateful for him for sure. That's great to hear. I, one time in North Carolina, before I moved out west, I went and saw him speak at a North Face event, and um, and they had uh-huh. a raffle, and they gave away a backpack, and I won the backpack, and he gave it to me. So I, I can say oh, I've nice. met him. He he definitely doesn't remember it, but I, I still <laughs> use that backpack. So uh, he's he's a cool oh, awesome. cool guy. I'm, I'm it makes me happy to yeah. hear that uh, it, he met he blew out blew the expectations out of the water. Um, 
one more. Really you were you were just talking about his his heart, um, and that reminded me of your brand, the Heart W. Can you explain the the meaning mm-hmm. behind that brand? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Heart W. It's it comes back to sort of like this broader sort of I, you know I guess maybe the broader philosophy of what I'm doing or the broader meaning of what I'm doing with my pack trips. But yeah, as I said, I feel like in a lot of ways these mules have have been these midwives that have delivered me back into something more primal, something more untrammeled something more sort of like connected to the evolution of what it means to be human. And so for me, it's what that really means is I, I, I go into the heart of the wilderness, but, but you know, the flip side of that is these mules are delivering me into the wilderness of my own heart. So there's this untrammeled, untracked part of myself that I have been, that I feel like in a lot of ways I've been alienated from and, it's getting me back to that. It's reconnecting me with the deepest parts of myself. Um, that, yeah, that, and that's really what I'm most interested in doing in, in the end. And this whole process is part of that. And the heart W definitely is a representation for me of what that means within yeah, all my animals wear that brand. And, and, uh, yeah, it's super meaningful to me for sure. Do you have the brand on yourself? I do. Yeah. Yep. I do. I definitely like, you know, people, <laughs> branding like, you know, it's, it, the Instagram community is full of so many different fascinating and amazing people. Um, and uh, But yeah, I've definitely gotten, over the years, I've certainly gotten a lot of grief about a lot of different aspects of it from, sure. you know, aspects of what I do. So whether it's, you know, people from certain animal rights organizations feel that like what I'm doing is cruel and inhumane. Um, but definitely there was, you know, I just had, which when I got one of the mules I got, and I, I showed some images of it getting branded. And, um, and wow, it was unbelievable. <laughs> the response that came back to me was vitriolic and, and, uh, yeah. And I just like, I, it just, it definitely just made me think quite seriously about, I, I didn't immediately just think they were just off their rocker. It did make me think about like, well, you know, is this cool to them and is this unkind to them? And, and, uh, and I thought, well, shoot, I put them all through this process. I don't think it's cruel. It is. That's it, an important facet because my stock free range is in the backcountry, and there is, you know, stealing stock is a real thing still in Montana. Rustling still happens. Yep. And the reason for brands is because I don't want to lose them, and you can't, you know, I want them to have these registered brands, all of them. So I just thought, well, screw it. I'm, you know, if they did it, I could do it. So, that's yeah, awesome. I got, I, I got branded. <laughs> that is, yep. that's really cool and, and that, that's hard to argue with <laughs> yeah um well man we have been talking for an hour and i have many i'm looking that's at my awesome. list yeah and I'm, i think i've we i've asked you like five questions <laughs> that i wanted to get through <laughs> I, i've got like we're gonna have to do part two i'm gonna hassle you for that because there's there's so much more i want to um, okay. talk about but but okay. i um i've got some some kind of quick questions that i go through with everybody if you have time to, to run through those real oh, quick good. Cool. Um, so what, if you had to pick one or two, what are your favorite books about the American West? Blood Meridian point. End of story. Really? The fast book about the American West. Yep. You know, you're the first person to mention <laughs> that, which is I'm, crazy. Are you? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Cormac McCarthy, by far my all time favorite author. And that book, Blood Meridian absolutely has blown my mind. I've probably read it 16 or 17 times. I still don't fully understand it. Every time I read it, I get something else out of it. Incredibly meaningful book. Um, not always super accessible, but that's, I think that's, yeah, by design and, and, uh, 
And again, one of those things that I'm quite happy never to resolve. I'm quite happy to hold these two things, like, you know, not the lack of understanding and the desire to totally understand it. I'm happy to hold those two things, you know, you know, equally. But yeah, that, that book is, yeah, has informed a huge amount of, of my own experience for sure. I, I misspoke. I thought you said one meridian and I was like, I've never heard of that. What, what book is that? Meridian. Blood meridian. Oh, no, yeah. Blood and that, meridian. that has come right. up and it's come up by a lot of, um, oh, okay. artistic minded people. And I've got oh, it sitting here on my shelf right now and I need, God, I need to make myself okay. read it. I, I will, I'm going to do it. <laughs> do you have, are, do you have any other favorite books, not about the West, but just favorite books in general? Mm, you know, pretty much anything by Cormac McCarthy. I think he's sort of like wrecked. Um, he sort of ruined fiction for me in a way. I just, after I got involved in reading his books, it was just so, everything just felt like such a letdown to me after reading that. So that, which is, you know, it's short-sighted on my part for sure, but uh, anything by Cormac McCarthy. Um, I, I know I just recently reread Sutri and, and you really like that book a lot. And I think there's so many interesting facets to that, but um yeah, I think anything by him, but you know, recently, I guess I could also say like recently, this, I don't mean it like it's some, something that I would take to my grave or anything, but I recently read a book by Peter Stark called Astoria, which was a great read about the American West. I love that book. of the American West. I found that really, really good book. Yeah, I love that. And it's, I was thinking about that book yesterday because I, I put a picture on Instagram mm. of, a, of a trip I did back in college in the Pacific Northwest where it was raining. It rained for like three weeks straight and it was cold. And I, I was thinking, you know, oh, I'm wearing wow. all this fancy gear and I about got trench foot and it was just a, a really rough time. And those people in that book, Astoria, wow. they, you know, they were wearing cotton or cotton and wool and leather. I mean, I don't know how they did it. I, I don't know how they did it. I don't, I don't either. I still don't get it. And, and I've been to a story and holy cow, it is the water, the, the water coming out of the sky is no joke over there for sure. Yeah. That, that's some real tough, tough stuff there. Um, do you have any favorite yeah. documentaries? Um, yeah. Meru. Yeah. So good. I, amazing. So inspiring. I think other than that, there, there is another, uh, there's a PBS documentary out there called three miles an hour, which is, you know, kind of a you know relatively low budget. I think it's well done, but relatively low budget documentary about, uh, in particular, about one you know really well known packer named Smoke Elser here in the Bob Marshall Wilderness, and he, uh, yeah, he's you know he's done some amazing things for packing, certainly for promoting packing. You know, we've been doing it for so long, and it, and it really delves into the history of the Bob Marshall Wilderness and the Wilderness Act and how that all sort of came together, but. Um, yeah, I think as far as documentaries, Meru and Three Miles an Hour. But I, I mean, Meru just like blew my mind. You know, it just, yeah, there's so much about that film. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. And all those guys, you know, Jimmy Chen, is, he's just a, a fascinating story into himself. And it's, um, God, what a well-made really film. Yeah. People who don't, if you don't like mountaineering, it doesn't matter because it's such a good film. Anybody would it like it. It does not matter. I agree. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So at the beginning, you listed out about what I would consider to be about six different full-time jobs that you do. That you, so what do you do for what do you do for fun when you when you need to blow off steam? Do you ever just kind of sit around and I do, do nothing? Those things. <laughs> That's <No>. it. <laughs> that is what I do for fun. Yeah. No. I mean, you know, honestly, the most fun thing that I'm involved in are definitely anything, not even just packing, but anything that has to do with my equine. So right now I'm in the process of transitioning from one lead horse to another. And so I've got this mare 
who uh, who's going to be, you know, this is her sort of like inaugural year as the lead horse. And so I've been working with her, you know, pretty much every single day for, you know, since the snow melted to really just get her tuned up. And we have a really big 32 day long project that we're going to be involved in for the entire month of July, moving about 16,000 pounds of bridge decking material to a backcountry bridge that's getting worked on. And so, you know, I'm really trying to get her ready for that. It's kind of like my main focus, but I really enjoy that. Um, Having had the chance to do, uh, you know, a, a saddle making apprenticeship with, you know, to me, one of the best saddle makers out there was a huge opportunity for me that's been in the works for quite some time. And, you know, making saddles is far more rewarding than I ever imagined. Um, and definitely something I just absolutely love, love, love to do. So really anything that has to do directly with, you know, my, my equines, I love to do it. And, uh, yeah. And then building saddles really is just so fulfilling. So those two things I do find incredibly, incredibly enjoyable. Um, so yeah, that is what I do. And I mean, in this lifestyle that I'm living, it is just so full on, you know, it is, I mean, it's just, it's my entire life revolves around these animals. I mean, I have a tack room saddle shop is right off my master bedroom from one door and the other door from my master bedroom opens directly into the hay shed where I feed out. So it's <laughs> just, cool. these animals are, they're just, they are my life in so many ways. Very cool. Um, this is probably a hard question for you. Um, but if you had to think of one single experience that would be the most powerful experience you ever had in the outdoors, and that could be scary, it could be funny, um, just a memorable experience. Is there is there any single experience that comes to mind that kind of has blown your mind? Yeah, I probably have one one scary, maybe one more inspiring. But yeah, you know, I I, I was uh, I was in the in the bob late in the fall. Uh, this is maybe five years ago now, and I was you know, just bumping a load of hay into a backcountry cabin for the forest service. And, uh, yeah, it was in October, late October. And, uh, you know, over, it rained the whole way in and I was just going to stay one night. And I was with a, a young woman who I'd met from Instagram and she just really wanted to get out there and see what this whole experience was like. So I let her tag along on this trip and, uh, you know, we it had rained all night. It had definitely snowed at the pass. And I, you know, genuinely was like, well, shoot, I didn't know if this was going to be a good move, but I was like, we can get up there and we can see if we can get out. It's a very, very, you know, steep traverse that you have to do to get over this path. It's straight up on the uphill side and straight down about 250, 300 feet on the downhill side. And it's basically the trail sort of carved out of a cliff. And I thought, well, it's not going to be a big deal because I have all the support from the Forest Service. So I can turn around, they can move my truck, I can go to a different trailhead or whatever. So we rode up there and, you know, it, we got into the snow. There was yeah, five or six inches. It was fresh. The stock was breaking through it without a problem. I wasn't loaded. You know, my stock was empty except for one load, my personal gear. So I thought, you know, we're going to be fine. And it didn't look too bad at all. So I got up on the traverse. And kind of came around this bend and wow, it was the whole entire trail was completely drifted over and you just couldn't see it from where I was down below. And, you know, had I to do it over, I would have just tied everyone up and just hiked it and and really just gotten a firsthand look at it and, uh, you know, been like, okay, this is going to be okay, you know, or not. And I could have turned around and it was not okay. And I immediately stopped, got off. I had this young woman in front of me 
riding one of my other horses and I just said, you just stay there. And the, the whole plan when you get in these situations, you have to, like, if you can't turn the whole string around tied, you basically go to the back of the string and you turn each animal around one at a time and then you lead them back out. Uh-huh. Um, and I couldn't even get to the back of the string. There was so much ice and so much snow and I just did not, I was just like immediately was like, oh my God, this is going to be, I mean, I just resigned myself. There's no way I'm going to get out of this without losing an animal over the edge because there's so much ice and the snow has drifted to almost four feet over the trail. Wow. And it was just this weird sort of thing where it was like, I don't know, it, it, in a way, it maybe it reminded me of a teeny bit, my own private version of that film, Touching the Void, where it's like, <laughs> yeah, the only way out is through it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, oh man, I was so freaked out. And so, yeah, honestly, we just charged ahead and just totally went for it. I could not ride, had to walk. And this poor girl in front of me was walking and the horses were bounding to get through the snow and there's all this ice on the rock underneath. And there were so many times where they slipped off the trail and barely recovered and like were hanging with legs over the cliff and then they scrambled back up and she almost got run over a few different times. And I mean, it, and the wind was absolutely howling and wow, I had never was I so happy as when I got to the top of that path. I mean, I was, I was shaking. She was shaking. She was crying. I, I mean, it was scary and we were, and the wind was every bit of 40 miles an hour and it was just blowing snow and, and, you know, I just never forget looking back at all those animals. And there is video footage of that actually on, on Instagram somewhere in there. But oh, really? my animals were so calm. Yeah, there is. Yeah, when I got to the top, I, like, looked back. And, yeah, you can just see us as we, as we crept onto the, to the saddle. And it was, yeah, whew, it was just, that was the scariest thing I've ever done. And then, I don't know, you know, probably the, one of the more amazing experiences I've probably had is just, honestly, there's one place I go in the North Fork of the Sun River country and there's just something about, you know, having a nice early supper and, you know, just kicking all the mules out and jumping on a horse bareback and just riding through these meadows, galloping through these meadows and the sun's setting and the sky is, you know, going from blue to, to, to amber to crimson to purple and, you know, just being out there and just really, really simple experience of just hanging out with a bunch of animals in the backcountry and just having this overwhelming sense that like, you know, I don't understand everything that's happening in this world. I don't understand how it all works. I don't really need to, you know, at the end of the day, I just know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I know I'm in this web of interconnection and, you know, just having a sense that everything's going to just work out. That's a good feeling to have. I, I don't think many people have that. Yeah. Um, that's that's really awesome. Yeah. And that brings me to my next question. Um, if you had to pick one spot that's your favorite place in the West, can you can you name it, or would you be willing to name it? Because when I asked Ben Masters that, he said, "Yeah, I got one, but I'm not going to tell you." <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm not that private about these places because honestly, it's like as far as I'm concerned, like I, the more people that get back in there, the better. That's just going to, I mean, hopefully these places don't get loved to death, but I don't think that's going to happen. I want people to get in there. I want people to explore the wilderness. It's, it's theirs just as much as mine. I don't care if you live in New York City or Alaska or wherever. All these wilderness areas are ours, and they're to be experienced and protected by all of us. So, no, honestly, I, I, I probably would just pick, um, I don't know, one or two places, either the North Fork of the Sun River or in the Bob, there's a place called Half Moon Park, which is part of, that's where I took Conrad and Jenny and, and uh yeah, just a large, big chunk of the of the Chinese wall, the southern end of it, and um, yeah, that is the Continental Divide, and there's something about that big rock face, and it 
it sheds pretty frequently during the day. So it's like shedding these big boulders and you can just see something that looks so static and yet it's just moving and it's alive and hearing those rocks just tumble off these cliffs and just land in these scree fields and the mountain goats and the bears and everything in that area. It's, it's just a, it's a really special place. So yeah, half moon park for sure. And then just the open meadow Valley of the North fork of the sun river uh, is really a remarkable piece of country for sure. Very cool. I've never been to either of those places, so I need to uh, get them on my list. Put them and on then, the list. Yeah, definitely. Um, so here's another one that's kind of tough, but I bet you'll have a good answer. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received, if you can think of one? Mm. I would say in the scene, only the scene, and in the herd, only the herd. Very good. That's probably the best of all that I've gotten. Yeah. Yeah, that's really yeah, good. And I mean, to me, it just of, of this overall project that we have, like my, my master's degree and my thesis and, and dissertation was really about Buddhist epistemology. So just theories of how we know what we think we know, especially as it re- relates to language, like linguistic epistemology is really like, that's right in my lane. And what I'm most interested in as to say, how does language affect the way we experience the world and, and adding thought into that as a linguistic function. So to me, I think we spend so much time falsely impregnating our perceptual flow. So we just have this array of of information coming in to our body. And we spend so much time and so much energy falsely impregnating it, whether it's diminishing it, whether it's, you know, exaggerating it, whether it's categorizing it and all that stuff is necessary. That's how we navigate the world. But I think we take it all too seriously in an implicit way. And I think that's saying from, you know, from the Buddha, just a really powerful one, you know, which is in the scene, only the scene, and in the herd, only the herd. And I think that process of impregnation of our perceptual flow, what we're actually doing is we're alienating ourselves from the profound richness of of what this world has to offer without all of that. We're so busy trying to add or take away from every experience that we just don't see that what a problem that actually is for us. And if you can let go of that process and just be with whatever it is that's in front of you, in the scene, only the scene, in the herd, only the herd, what unfolds is an experience that's significantly richer than this limited um, you know, way we have of managing our reality, managing our, our perception. I agree with that. I, you know, it's the kind of thing that I understand it completely in theory, and it's one of these things that's simple but not easy. <laughs> I, I understand yeah, it, yeah, but it's so hard to, to, to really live it. Um, so yeah, last yeah. last big question, um, if you could make a request oh. of the people that listen to this podcast, and it's just people that love the American West, whether it, they do it through outdoor sports or through art or conservation or ranching, the full spectrum. But if you could make a request to those people or offer some words of wisdom, um, is there anything that comes to mind? I mean, I would honestly just as maybe as cliche as it sounds, I would just say get out there. You know, mm-hmm. this is, this is everyone's wilderness, like I said, and just get out there. And, and, and maybe I would say like, you know, look at the difference between a wilderness area and just a standard national forest. There is a difference. You know, there's a difference legally, politically, but there's also, it's a different experience. It's a different experience being in a wilderness area, being somewhere that's so primitive, um, that's so untrammeled, that's so unaffected and untouched, largely untouched by by humans that hasn't had 
this huge list of land management decisions made about it. The land management decision has been, let's leave it alone. Let's have some places that are left alone. And I would say go to those wilderness areas and, and, uh, and see what comes up for you, both internally and externally. I think that's great advice. I completely agree. So how can people connect with you online? Where should they look? Just really just Instagram is great at Neil Dreiger. That's me. And, you know, yeah, follow along on our little ridiculous journey. You got a great Instagram, man. It's um, it's really resonated with people, obviously. So um, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. And I'm not I'm serious, man. We need to do a part two because we we only yeah, scratch the I'm surface. Um, that, but yeah, I, we did. More yeah, I'd love to. Cool. Well, I really appreciate your time, and I'll look forward to staying in touch. And thank you so much. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll have to get you out on a pack trip one day. Hell yeah, I'm in. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.